Very appreciative of that. Thank you for the good testimony tonight and challenge to our hearts. So good to have Andrew and Charlene Threlfall here. They're somewhere, I think, in the congregation. There they are. There's Andrew. Charlene is somewhere else. So good to see them this morning. You may be aware that uh, their being here is the answer to many, many prayers. Had great difficulty being able to leave the country where they're ministering. And uh, then when they settled down into South Korea, Charlene was very, very sick. And uh, the Lord has raised her up and enabled them to come. And it's a very, very good time. You may be aware that uh, Charlene's mother, Darlene, is also very sick. She's in the hospital uh, just ongoing complications that are very serious. want to really urge our praying for her. The Lord would give her exactly what is necessary to restore her and to heal her. He's done that many, many times for her. And uh, we're beseeching Him again. But Andrew, it's really, really good to have you back. Don't know how long you'll be here, but your being here is an answer to our prayers. We're very grateful to the Lord. I also want to mention something that was in our worship guide this morning, and that is that the flowers that uh, are here on the Lord's table are in honor of Mrs. Jessie Boyd, who was our former pastor's wife, and she was uh, just really one of these people, almost irreplaceable. When the Lord took her, it left uh, a tremendous hole when it came to prayer in the life of our assembly. You may be aware of the fact that she was for many, many years on the faculty at Bob Jones University, taught French there. Mr. Boyd taught Bible. Uh, The Lord took him, and Mrs. Boyd continued to teach. And then when she retired from that, she had a little apartment in Campus View Apartments, CVA, right across the the, uh, Wade Hampton from Bob Jones University. And she, at that point in her life, had developed such a vigorous and satisfying devotional life that included a great deal of prayer for the Lord's servants and the Lord's work. Um, She kept track of many hundreds of names, particularly of men in the ministry, And she would pray for them faithfully every week. Uh, And she really guarded that time. I remember on one occasion we had, I think, invited her over to the house for something, maybe on a Friday night, or I forget what it was, but it would have kept her out a little later than she normally went to bed. And she just, and she loved to come over to the house. And you know, if you invited her, she always, she, she was really kind of a social butterfly. And she was really happy to spend time with people. But uh, she really looked so sorrowful. She just said that if she came over, that it would really mean that she would have a difficult time the next morning in her prayer time. And I just uh, took that away, the way she, she really guarded that and actually denied herself something she would have enjoyed because that was so important to her. 
a really precious moment uh, just a day or two before the Lord took her. And she passed in Barge Hospital on the campus of Bob University. And I went in to see her. And she, at that point, was very faint of voice and sleeping a lot of the time. But she said, if they can pray up there, I will always pray for you. And I really had never had anyone say that, but there's no question about people up there praying for us or being able to do that. Uh, We certainly are not to pray to them or even pray for them. But they're praying for us in an intercessory way, as our Lord does, or is certainly appropriate. And from the evidence we have in Revelation chapter 6 about the saints under the altar, uh, they do speak to God. And it's wonderful to remember her, not just for her work's sake, but for her close walk with the Lord. And... uh, I think we, I'm not sure that we still have it. If we don't, we should find it probably. But the beautiful chandelier that we have in the lobby out there was given uh, by our church folks. Money was given to purchase that and to put it up when we came into this building in honor of Mrs. Boyd. This pulpit furniture was all in honor of Pastor Boyd, her husband. And so every Lord's Day, we continue to profit from benefit from the remembrance of them and how precious they were to us. Well, I have a PowerPoint tonight for this fifth reading in Pilgrim's Progress. We're going to spend a little time with it. It did occur to me this week that I'm working us pretty hard. And I was thinking about that. And after the service this morning, right back there, one of our children said, Pastor, I I have a request. And she looked up up at me real sweetly And her request was that I would cut the reading down, that it's too much, and we're, you know, they can't keep up with it. Uh, I don't know exactly how old she is, maybe, I don't know, 9 or 10 or 11. I just told her I really sympathize with her. I was thinking that same thing this week, but it's too late. We, uh, my, I... I lined this reading out the way I did because I'm hoping that we can do both parts of Pilgrim's Progress by the completion of the school year. And so it's all tracked out in the edition that I have with about 30 pages a week, and that's why we're clipping right along at that rate. But you can, of course, you can go back and uh, just recover these kinds of things that you don't get to completely spend the time with that you'd like to from week to week. What we're going to do tonight, first of all, I want to begin just a little bit of an overview of Bunyan's spiritual journey. Just going to give a very brief first leg of it tonight. And we're going to start going down the highway uh, in the coach that we were on in 2014 with our uh, church history tour group. And we're coming into the little town of Elstow. And here is the sign on the village green, Elstow, John Bunyan's birthplace. There's much about that town that is still very quaint. It still has some of the old facade in many of the buildings and the beams inside 
This is the Swan Inn. And here is evidently drone footage that I took off of the web of what we typically visit and what we're most interested in. The building in the foreground is called the Moot Hall. And that was there in Bunyan's time. Uh, you'd call it kind of a community center. Today it's a museum that is primarily occupied with John Bunyan's life. And then you'll see in the background the church. That is the parish church of Elstow. Elstow is just a little bit to the south of Bedford where he lived and ministered as an adult. And when John Bunyan um, was just a child, this is the church that he attended. In fact, he attended it the first 20 years of his life. And he was an unconverted man. Uh, but he rang the bells in that detached bell tower. There are six great bells there. They were the bells from Bunyan's time. They're still there and they still ring them. And he was sprinkled out of that baptismal font that is still there in the church. And he probably in his late teens uh, may have been conscripted or he may have volunteered, but he went off to serve during the English Civil War and the Lord wonderfully spared his life and he came back. He was not a converted man. Uh, he married and through a sequence of events, he uh, began to try to turn over a new leaf and to live a righteous life. And uh, even though one of the things he most enjoyed was being a bell ringer, those bells at that tower, uh, he got to the place where he was afraid to do that for fear that the bells would fall on him uh, because he was trying so hard to be right with God, but he wasn't really right and, and uh, went through a lot of soul crisis about that. And we're just going to end with this. We'll pick up the installment here probably in two weeks. But he tells in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, of one day uh, being in the street and overhearing three old women talking. And uh, they were talking certainly in front of houses like this. These are still in Elstow. And they were talking in the sun. And what they were talking about really arrested his attention. Uh, they were from a little Baptist church. They really understood the gospel, got his attention, and Lord willing, we'll pick up there in a couple of weeks. I want to call our attention to the fact that in the reading that we did this week, uh, Bunyan took us to these seven places. And I don't know how many of them you had the opportunity of giving attention to and the conversations that took place there. The town of Loop Fair Speech had a citizen named By Ends. And that speech is very worth reading carefully. And when it came to the hill called Lucre, where there was a silver mine, do you remember who they encountered there? What was his name? They encountered Demas. And I think probably the most insightful and scriptural thing that Bunyan describes there is Demas says to them, you don't come here, I'll show you a thing. And the way Bunyan describes it is that the ground uh, around the mine was very deceitful and that people actually uh, 
unwittingly when they go to look in, fall in. They fall in. And some of them are never heard of again. They got basically buried in covetousness for the remainder of their earthly and their eternal existence. It's really, really quite an insightful passage. But I want to take us tonight, number five, to By Path Meadow. Now just listen to the, the nomenclature. By Path. By Path Meadow. How did they get there? Well, they were on the right way. They were on the King's Highway. But the way was rough. And their feet were tender by reason of their travels. So the souls of the pilgrims were much discouraged because of the way. And he references Numbers 21 verse 4. I don't know whether you looked that passage up or not. But this is the passage that is recording God's sending Israel around Edom rather than sending the nation through the land allotted by God to Edom. But because they had to go around, it was a very difficult way evidently and the scripture records that in their souls these people became very discouraged. Now folks that is exactly the nature of much of our pilgrimage when we're on the right road. We tend to think this is tough, it can't be right. If it's tough it actually might be a sign that it's right. And what we do, or what we tend to do, is the very thing that Bunyan is calling attention to that is so problematic. And that is, we start looking for something better. There's got to be a better way. And eventually, they discovered a road, on the left hand of the road, a meadow, and a stile, a stile... Uh, is a kind of a way over a fence. There's steps for human beings. Animals, of course, can't use it, so it keeps the animals in, but human beings can get over it back and forth. That meadow is called bypath meadow. And folks, they always look something like that. Oh, that is so better looking. And you know what? There are many, many temptations to that in your Christian life, aren't there? When some of us were students at Bob Jones University, one of the things that we heard about frequently was Dr. Bob Jr.'s, Dr. Bob Sr.'s saying, finish the job, finish the job. And we were warned again and again about not dropping out of school especially as freshmen, when you know how it is the first six or eight weeks, it's like, I can't, I can't handle this. This is going to kill me. And there are students who just drop by the way very quickly. It's too tough, and they feel like it's got to be a better way. So you have people who dropped out of school who should have stayed. It was God's will that they be there and that they learn to do the work and that the day came when 
They walked across the platform and graduated. You have people who walked away from their calling to the mission field or to pastoral ministry because they evidently observed that's a tough way to live. You have people who went into the ministry and when they began to encounter the difficulties, they looked for another field or another church. And there, you know, there's always something that looks like that. And then finally, sometimes they just drop completely out. You have people who do this when it comes to their marriage. A particular person looks like that. But their godly parents are saying, that's a problem. That's not wise. We have great reserve about this. By Path Meadow. And then you have people sometimes when they get married, and then when they encounter the difficulties, particularly if they did marry someone that they did not have their godly parents' blessing about, and then it gets like that. That's what Bunyan describes. Finally, that road becomes what it really was. And it's dark, and it's rainy, and it's cold, and it's loud, and now they want to reverse their steps, and it's very hard to go back. Bunyan says they got some encouragement. There was a voice Quoting Jeremiah 31, 21, let thine heart be towards the highway, even the way that thou wentest, turn again, turn back. They attempt to do it, but it's nighttime now. And my point, folks, is that Bunyan is describing real life experience for truly Christian people. They get off the track. And they do it because doing what God has called them to right now at this place, in this way has many discouragements to it. It gets heavy. And so they turn away. Now, that's just the beginning of the trouble. Because it is hard to reverse all that. And some things can't be reversed. You marry the wrong person, you can't reverse that. I mean, somebody can give you a piece of paper that says you're divorced. You're not. And in the end, this giant, what's his name? Giant what? Despair. Despair settles into people's spirit. Because they know, they look back, and they got off track. And they can't get back. And that's a very defeating experience. And Bunyan portrays then this giant putting them in his castle. And what's the name of the castle? Giant despair. And in what kind of castle? Doubting castle. And people like this begin to doubt everything. 
They often begin to doubt their Bible, they doubt God, they doubt their salvation, they doubt the reality of Christianity. And of course, the despair just keeps beating them over the head, beating them down. Now, what's really important here is that in the end, what the giant tells them to do is take their own lives. And sometimes people who are truly Christians are tempted with suicide. And Bunyan has quite a handling of that in there. He knew this from real life, and you find it in your Bible. And in other words, the only way to get out of this despair and the only way in the end to put an end to all this misery is just to take my life. Well, what's really wonderful is when Christian finally says to his companion, I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And, and what does hopeful say? Something like, that is good news, my brother. Take it out and try it. Which he does. And the lock gives and they're out. And folks, what is that key again? The key of what? God's promise. And God's promises are wonderful. And even when we do get off track, God restores the backslider. He restores the years that the locusts have eaten. He does wonderful, gracious things. Because why? Because that's who he is and the way he is. And God will do that for us as well. So let no one here, no matter what mistakes you may have made or deliberate turns you took that weren't right, if you be like the prodigal and just go back and acknowledge all to the Lord, why the Lord tells you what kind of reception you're going to have and it's going to be wonderful and you can count on the grace and the mercy of the Lord. Okay, let's, we can turn that off now. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles tonight to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians and the sixth chapter. This series has to do with the true Christian's relationship to the world. And you remember that the Lord describes this in his high priestly prayer with three prepositional expressions. And the one that we're giving attention to now is the second. When he speaks of people like us, hopefully us, that they are not of the world. And it's the qualifier. I want to call this to our attention again tonight. It's the qualifier that enables us to understand the foremost sense in which the Lord means they're not of the world. The qualifier is, even as I am not of the world. I want to call our attention to this fact now. That qualifier that is the key to our understanding the sense in which Jesus says we're not of the world. The key is, even as he is not of the world. Folks, that qualifier that does that is also the revealer of our grand objective when it comes to our relationship to the world.
It states it in these terms. Our grand objective isn't merely to be kept from sinning in some way, in some worldly way. That's important, but that isn't our grand objective. Not according to that qualifier. Our grand objective isn't merely to preserve our good testimony by not being worldly people. That's important, but that's not our primary objective. The primary objective is to be just like Him. As I am not of the world. That qualifier reveals from God's standpoint the objective. And it's also our objective. When we think about how we're going to live the relationships that we're going to develop, the things to which we will give our attention and time and resources, those things that actually become ambitions to us. The great objective isn't just to keep us from sinning or preserve our testimony. The grand objective that God has in mind when it comes to this whole matter of our relationship to the world is that we would be just like Him. Even as I am not of the... Whatever that means, that's the objective. It's the truth of us now, but because we continue to live in the world, it remains out there the thing that we are constantly challenged to be sure that we develop in actuality in our living. Now, no one can possibly make right decisions about this matter apart from this verse. Let's read it together. Galatians chapter 6 and the 14th verse. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Let's read it again. May it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now note this wording, the true Christian's relationship to the world. The cross through which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. We want to know. I want to know. You want to know. We want to know. Whether particular things are worldly or not. We want to know whether or not we should or should not do a certain thing. But far more important than that is that we would know what this verse is teaching. And that we would take this as the objective, not of the world, even as he is not of the world. Here is the Apostle Paul 
and he is the model or the ideal Christian, and he says, when it comes to that matter, you're crucified to the world. And on the other hand, the world or the world is crucified to you. So I want to begin tonight what will take us several weeks, and that is the matter of not of the world experienced. And I could add the word daily to it, experienced daily. We started with this particular description, not of the world. We started with the whole question of in what sense are we not of the world? And the answer to that was primarily in our nature. We have a new nature. In that sense, we're as Christ is not of the world, because we now are partakers of the divine nature. Just as he was God in the flesh, we're not God in the flesh, but we are partakers of a new nature, and in that sense, we're not of the world, as he was not of the world. But we're moving now to a second matter when it comes to this not of the world, even as he's not. And what we have here in this statement is telling us about our experience. How is this matter of being crucified, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, how is that experienced? Well, look at the way the verse opens. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, the experience of the crucified life begins with the matter of what we glory in. May it never be, this man says, this wasn't always the case. There was a day when he gloried in the exact opposite. But this is the life he has now. This is his living experience. He has a new nature, and now this is his experience. Crucified to the world. The world crucified to him. Paul, what does that mean? It means a complete change in what I glory in. And what I glory in now is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now obviously, he's not talking about the wooden implement that was an instrument of execution. What he's talking about is what took place on that cross. What did take place on that cross? In this book, Galatians, what he's getting at is that what took place on the cross is our only means of being justified before God. That it's not in any personal attainments, not even in keeping the law almost flawlessly. There was a day, of course, when this man gloried in his pedigree, in his Jewishness, in the very tribe that he was from, in the fact that as touching the righteousness that is in the law, blameless, that was his glory. Total change. 
after his conversion on the road to Damascus. And now, once he saw clearly, this is his position. And it's the position that he lives out. And that is that all of that self-ambition and all of that personal attainment, he says, the things that were gained to me, I now count as nothing. Well, that's a kind of a death. And instead now he glories in what Jesus Christ did on that cross for his justification. That Jesus Christ was delivered up by God himself, delivered up to the justice, to divine justice. And having been delivered up to that, in that body that God prepared for him, he accepted and he bore all of the righteous, all of the justifiable punishment that is due to our transgressions. And on that cross, he was made sin for us. He suffered for our sin. He consumed the wrath of God. By consuming it, he essentially left us in a position where it would never, ever fall upon us. That is what he did on the cross. And Paul can say earlier in this book then, I am crucified with Christ. That's chapter 2, verse 20. Here he says, I'm crucified to the world, the world crucified to me. He started out in chapter 2 by saying, I'm crucified, I'm crucified with Christ. This was our text last week. And it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And God forbid, may it never be that I should glory in anything but that he loved me and gave himself for me. So folks, that's the starting point of the experience. And it is something that you actually have a change. That's why I'm calling it experiential. You have a complete change in your perspective and in what you are satisfied in. And what you glory in. Now you glory in what Jesus Christ did on the cross on your behalf. Now, the apostle moves on from that. And he talks about the fact, look at the verse again. That now he's in a position in which the world has been crucified to him and himself to the world. And that's what we need to move to tonight now. That this matter of experiencing being not of the world, you can tell folks that, this is, that, that you have genuinely been joined to Jesus Christ that a miraculous change has taken place because number one, of what you glory in, and now number two, in your new way of living. And I know that that sounds contradictory because the verse is talking about being crucified. But if you'll think for a moment again of Galatians 2.20 where the apostle said, I am crucified with Christ. 
nevertheless I live. But it's a new way of living. The life that I now live in the flesh, he says, new way of living now. And that is what we want to give our primary attention to tonight. What is this new way of living? Well, number one, what we gave a great deal of attention to already, and it is that I was made a partaker of the divine nature. And as we discovered last week, that is an actual thing by virtue of regeneration. God gives to us new life. That life is given to us as we are united with Christ himself so that he can say, as he does in John 15, that he abides in us and we abide in him. Christ lives in me, Paul says. And that new life, eternal life, Christ himself within us, makes a new use of all of our members. Same members, same hands, feet, eyes, hearing, mind. But now made a new use of by, I'm going to personify this, by our new life. Given to us, miraculously, in regeneration. But what we're primarily concerned with tonight is what this means about our new way of living when we're told that we have been crucified. Crucified with Christ, chapter 2, verse 20, crucified to the world and the world to us. You ever read that? You ever read these verses in Galatians and find yourself a little puzzled? Well, I think that any Christian who's ever read them and thought about them for as much as 30 seconds is puzzled. How can this say, I'm crucified and the world is crucified to me? I'm very much alive. And is this just a kind of a magnificent way of stating something, a kind of a spiritual idealism, or is there actually something here that's real? And the answer to that is, most certainly this is real, and it has an aspect to it that is experiential every single day as a Christian. It begins with our position. This is something that we gave some attention to last week. It begins with our position in God's own mind as He thinks about us. And you remember that last week we thought of this in terms of the passages in the New Testament that speak of our having died with Christ and been buried with Christ and risen with Christ, and ascended to the right hand of the Father with Christ, so that the Scripture says we're seated in heavenly places with Him. And what we went over is the fact that this is our position as God Himself regards us, the way He views us. He views us 
as inseparably joined with Jesus Christ. In other words, it's talking about our state in the presence of God. If you ask God, our state is we are inseparably joined with Jesus Christ. His death was our death, so much so that we were united with him. It's one way to say it, in his death and crucifixion, buried with him, risen with him, and so on. Now I want to ask you, if you would, to look right across the page in your Bible, in Ephesians to chapter 1. And there is a statement here, a truth here, that will be really helpful to us, I think, in comprehending this better. The third verse begins by blessing God for all of our spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And all of those are in accord with, look at verse 4 now, they are just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And I just want to pause. That verse says that everything that we have by way of spiritual blessing, and the passage goes on and details all of it, all the way from our salvation to glorification someday. It says that all of that is what we were chosen for in Christ. And that that choosing in Christ was before the world was even created. In other words, folks, I could put it this way. When did God regard me to be crucified, buried, risen, raised, ascended with Christ? When did he regard me that way? Answer, before the foundation of the world. He chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. I was thinking about this yesterday. I mentioned this morning that I was out walking and I was thinking about this and praying and trying to come up with an illustration that would help and my eye fell on the ground that was littered with these. Probably can't see that. That's an acorn. And when I saw it, there's a line from Charles Haddon Spurgeon that I've often used in a particular lecture that I used to give at the university. Spurgeon said that before the creation, the whole universe lay in the mind of God like unborn forests in an acorn's cup. The whole universe lay in the mind of God like you take that and just go ahead and chart it over many hundreds of years and out of that can come forests of oak trees. like unborn forests in an acorn's cup. 
And folks, that really is it. In just that same way, the whole vine and all of its branches were in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. The whole body with Christ as its head and every single member in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. And He chose it. You and I were regarded as united to Christ that way before the creation. And all of those centuries that are recorded for us in our Old Testament, that's the mind of God about what's coming. He determined it and anticipated it and foretold it. And finally, at a certain point in time, in my lifetime, and in your lifetime, if you truly are joined to Christ, what God determined before He ever created and what He anticipated all those long millennia was finally actualized in my experience. I had that position. It didn't begin when I accepted Christ. God had determined it long ago. And now, when I put my faith in Christ, and I'm joined to Christ, and I'm given new life, and given Christ, it's actualized. I am actually in that body. Not before. Even though I'm regarded in the mind of God in that way, I am not joined to Christ until regeneration. And then, it, it, here's another word, it's effectualized in my case. It's a wonderful thing. And I want to ask you to turn to the book of Romans in the sixth chapter where I want to call our attention to a statement that we are going to need to give more extensive attention to probably in two weeks. Next week we have the Lord's table. Two weeks after that probably is the time that we will come back to this. But I want to call your attention to something that is often very puzzling as Christian people reading, and it's understandable that it is. We're going to begin our reading with the third verse that we've already called attention to. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? That's the actualization of it. Therefore, we have been actually buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united, I'm having just read this over this quickly, but you can see, folks, you can see the nature of this wording. It all has to do with what we looked at last week, and that is our being united to Christ, and being united to Him then we are identified with Him in all these ways, in all these events in His life. Verse 5, united with Him in the likeness of His death. Certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Now the next verse is the one I want to get at. Knowing this, that our old self, or that's the word man, 
our old man was crucified with him. Now, God has regarded me and you that way all along. But that occurred, that was actualized in my life in June of 1965. My old man in actuality was crucified. Now what that means we need to get at in a couple of weeks. I'm calling your attention to it in order to confirm this point. That God regards us a certain way long before it happens. It happens at a point in time. And when it does happen, it is, here's where I'm going with it, it is experiential. In other words, it moves from just being positional as God regards me. It moves to something that actually affects me. And if it happens, folks, you know it affected you. The effects, E instead of A, the effects become more and more apparent as you go along. One of the first effects is what we've already seen. Now what you glory in. But one of the other effects is what we're looking at in the remainder of that verse, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, and that is, you are crucified to the world, and the world crucified to you. And this actually becomes your, it's a miraculous thing, folks, it becomes your miraculous experience. Now, I want to try to flesh that out a little bit tonight. That experience, you know, we, look, we should not, we went over this this morning in this passage with Nicodemus, we should not stand back and say to ourselves, oh, I, you know, that's incomprehensible. And the Lord would say to us, don't be amazed that I'm saying this to you. It's real. And to help us understand that that is real, that it is actualized in our experience, and that when that takes place, it is like the wind, there are effects. In order to confirm that, we need to consider the fact that Jesus Christ actually calls people to that from the very beginning of their right relationship to him. Would you turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke? I want us to see two verses there. And the first one that we need to look at is Luke chapter 9 and the 23rd verse. And what's the point? Why are we looking at this? We're looking at it in order to see that Jesus Christ calls people to this. To what? 
to the cross. He calls them to the cross. It isn't just that he goes to it. He calls them to it, and he calls them to it at the very beginning of any right relationship to him. And the way this is put in the 23rd verse of Luke chapter 9 is this. He said to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, do I wish to come after Christ? That night in 1965, without knowing any theology, I'm a 12-year-old boy, but everything's so changed in my heart that I want, I want Christ. All right, if anybody wants that, then he has to do this. He's got to deny himself and take up his cross. And it's a daily thing. He takes it up every day and follows me. And my point is, the Lord Jesus Christ issues that call and that demand on everybody who ever comes for salvation. And what is really significant about this, look at the verse that precedes it. This is when the Lord began to reveal to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. That's his work. And now the very next verse, he's saying, and the same for you. For anybody who wants to follow me. It's a daily cross. Think of Galatians 6.14. Did it happen for Saul of Tarsus? Answer, I am crucified unto the world and the world unto me. Now I feel like I need to clarify for just momentarily. <clears throat> Let me use an illustration to begin with. Think of what the Lord said to the rich young ruler. Was, was that going to require him to deny himself? Was that going to be a kind of a death for him? Sure. Have you ever read that to yourself and thought, boy, am I sure glad that wasn't me and that he didn't call me to that. I don't know if I would have been able to do that. The fact is he did call us to that. He did call you to that. But perhaps in your case, he did not have to specify something so directly. But what happens, particularly when we're young, is that the Spirit of God works in our hearts a complete collapse. So that, as we were giving attention to it this morning, so that we're willing to step onto the elevator. We're not trying to keep one foot back in the world or our ambitions or anything. We are wholeheartedly like the man <clears throat> that started out in Pilgrim's Progress. He's read in his book. His family is trying to dissuade him. The neighbors are laughing at him. And finally he turns his face and he begins to run across the field and they cry out after him and he closes his ears and cries, life, life, eternal life. He's abandoned everything. That's what happens 
And sometimes, particularly for people older in life, when they really have made a God out of something, then the Spirit of God puts His finger right on that and says, you got to turn that loose. That's where your feet are firmly embedded in the world and in your flesh, and you're going to have to step on the elevator with both feet. But folks, when you're young, when you're a child, as many in this room probably were, when you came to the Lord, you don't have something like that in your life. You just come to realize, I'm lost, I'm a sinner, there's going to be a penalty for that, Christ is the Savior, I want to be saved. And if in that moment, whether you're four years old or six years old or nine years old, if the Spirit of God has truly worked in your heart effectually, there is this complete collapse inside and the embrace of Christ and Christ alone, even though you couldn't explain it theologically and you don't understand it theologically, it's a work of God. It's a supernatural, miraculous work of God. And He did it for you. But my point is this. If you're an adult like that rich young ruler, if you've been listening to Jesus and reading the Gospels and watching Him like the crowds were watching Him, He says to people like you, you are going to have to abandon your father and your mother and your brother and your sister and your own life also and take up a cross and follow me. That's the Christian life. And when people really get a hold of that and they see all of their hopes and ambitions and their God smashed, and they're down on their knees like Saul on the road to Damascus, that, folks, is when they get converted. And truly, at that point, it is a crucifixion. And it's real. Actual. And they begin to live in light of that. And if we ask ourselves... How does that happen? Crucified to the world. I want to ask you to turn to another passage, 1 John chapter 2. And again, this is one that we need to just note tonight without going into any detail about. But this is going to give us the overview tonight that we can give more attention to in the weeks to come. We've noted, and I've called attention several times in this series so far, to what verse 16 says when it tells us all that is in the world. And we're wondering, what's the world? Well, what we've discovered is it's fallen humanity as a mass. And what we've also discovered is it's that mass of people indulging in the lusts of their flesh that are energized by Satan. That's what this verse has in mind when it says all that is in the world the lust of the flesh, all these passions of the flesh, these are internal in us. And the Bible says that's what makes up the world. People with those passions like that. And then 
people produce things. Their passions, in their passions, they produce things. Some of those things, as I showed you last week, beautiful olive wood candlestick. Some of them are just, some of them are just beautiful. Some of them are very practical, usable things. Others of them are, are truly licentious, wicked. But it's lost people and they produce things, all right? They produce Hollywood. There's not been a greater instrument of evil in the life of this nation than Hollywood. They produce Wall Street. Many, many of us in this room probably make use in one way or another of investment involves Wall Street. They, the world produces that. The world produces the paper currency that we use. All right? Those things, folks, are the products that our eyes can see. They are, what this verse says, the pleasures for the eyes. It's like Eve. She saw it was good for food. It's like Achan. He looks at it and he sees this garment and this gold. It's like Samson when his parents say, isn't there somebody else? And he says, get her, she looks good to me. It's things our eyes can see that other people have produced. These two together along with the pride of life. That's Saul the Pharisee. Pride of my life. These things, folks, are the elements in the world. And to be crucified to the world then is to be what with reference to these things? You'd have to be crucified to them. There's no being crucified to the world in some kind of abstract You're crucified to these passions. You're crucified to this pride. You now glory in something else, and your passions are for something else. And you can see this if you turn back to Galatians with me. It's really remarkable that in this book, we have not just two But we have three statements in which the apostle speaks of being crucified. The very first one is in chapter 2, verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ. The last one is the one we're trying to understand, Galatians 6, 14. The world is crucified to me. I'm crucified to the world. Paul, what does that mean in experience? All right, there's a third reference to being crucified, it's in chapter 5. And look at it in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its what? What's it say? Galatians 5, 24. They've crucified the flesh with its what? With 1 John 2, 16. With all those things that make up the world. Being crucified to the world is what deals with those lusts. Crucified to those passions, 
that make up the world out there is what puts us folks in a position of being crucified to it. And we will give more attention to that. But I want to bring this up. Do you feel do you feel that way? Do you feel crucified to the passions of your flesh? Sometimes you do. Many times you don't. You must probably feel very alive to the passions of the flesh and therefore to the world and all of the seductions out there in the world to those very passions inside you. You actually feel very alive to the world. You're right. It's one of the reasons that Christian people who are trying to walk closely with the Lord are very careful about the places to which they go. And the things that are going on there. Because they are very aware that they are living passionate, that there's an electricity here, that I, something gets ignited in me. You're right. And it's probably then part of the reason that when the Scripture talks about our being dead, it, it speaks of it as being crucified, which was a very lingering kind of death. You're not getting out of it. You're nailed to that cross. And folks, when you're joined with Jesus Christ, not just in the way God regards you, but it now has been actualized in your case. And you have new life. But there's also Romans 6 talking about what's happened to your old man and the rest of what that passage goes on to describe. And it is living experience. It changes things. And yet there is this, and the life that I now live in the flesh. It's talking about my human body. The life that I now live. I am crucified. Those passions and lusts crucified. But there is this lingering. And that's what makes this an experience daily. This is why it's the cross daily. Because again and again and again, we have to deal with the world and all those passions and all of that product of that out there and the effect upon ourselves. We have a Bible reading schedule done by this 19th century pastor, Robert Murray McShane. He died at 29. McShane came to the Lord after the death of his brother, David, whom he greatly admired. David was eight or nine years older than he. David died at 26. McShane at this point was a college student in Edinburgh. And that really shook his world. 
And when he reflected back upon that experience a year later, he wrote in his journal, listen to this, on this morning last year came the first overwhelming blow to my worldliness. He's not talking about something positional. He's talking about something that happened to him. My worldliness took a blow when my brother died and I got right with God. And then in the months that went on, he would record things like this in his journal. March of that year, a year later, I hope never to play cards again. He'd continued doing it. In fact, he loved to get together with other college kids and they would play cards and they would dance and they would play games on the Lord's Day. He loved all that stuff. Now, God dealt a blow to his worldliness and then later now, I'm done with the cards. Then a couple weeks later, I'm never going to visit on Sunday evening again. You're not talking about visiting people to minister to them spiritually. He's talking about just hanging out with people and doing all kinds of games and things on the Lord's Day. Next month, I absented myself from the dance. Upbraidings ill to bear. In other words, his friends gave him a hard time about that. He didn't go to the dance today, tonight. But I must try to bear the cross. He's living it. He is living the crucified life. And it brings him to decisions here and there and a couple weeks later. And to make the right decision, folks, is a cross. He has to deny those passions. The world and those passions have become crucified to him, and he's crucified to them, and they think it's a joke. They upbraid him. It adds to the weight of his cross. But it isn't all negative because he writes these kinds of things in his journal. I've been reading Henry Martin's memoirs. You may know Martin is the one who went out to India, translated the scriptures into Persian and did work on them in Muslim and sacrificed his life at a very early age. He's reading that. You have a, you have a change in your big interests. I would that I could imitate him, give up father, mother, country, house, health, life, everything for Christ. That sounds like a man, something's changed in him. I wish I could just give up everything for Christ. In December of that year, this is the last one I'll read to you, I heard a street preacher. He had a foreign voice, but he seemed really in earnest. And he quoted a striking passage, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come. And it's from this he seems to derive his authority. 
that there's that verse in the Bible that the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And so he's up doing it. He's saying to people, come on. And he seems to have authority that he gets from that verse. Let me learn from this man to be earnest for the truth. It made me think when I read that this week of the pilgrims in Vanity Fair. So what do you buy? And one of them looks at them earnestly and says, we buy the truth. McShane's experiencing that. Let me learn from this man to be earnest for the truth and to despise the scoffing of the world. That world is crucified to me. Now, dear people, it doesn't work out issue by issue, thing by thing in every Christian's life exactly this way. Your Christian life is unique. But if you tonight are not of the world, the sense in which you're not of it, first of all, is you have a new nature. That was last week. And secondly, you have experienced God doing something miraculous in you that has so altered you that the world and its charms and all of the things that to you used to be so important. You've had a death to those things and it's an ongoing kind of dying when your passions rear up to new life and new strength. You don't win all the battles but in general you are going forward in this path of crucified to the world which means crucified to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life that characterizes that world out there. And when we sing the song, Nearer, Still, Nearer, Lord, to be thine, and then the next line comes up, we ought to know in our hearts it's true. Sin with its follies, I gladly resign. And my biggest grief is that I don't experience all of that that my heart desires to. But my position of heart is I gladly resign sin with all its follies, its pleasures, its pomp, its pride. Give me Jesus, my Lord crucified. That's Galatians 2.20. That is Galatians 5.24, that's Galatians 6.14, and it's real in experience. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for these wonderful passages and what they reveal, and we pray that you would continue to open the eyes of our understanding and loving Lord grant that more and more our heart's desire would be complete union with Christ that we may know Him even in His sufferings and most of all in the power of His resurrection 
Gracious Lord, we pray tonight especially for the younger people in our congregation and the decisions that lie before them and the many temptations and seductions to ways that are bypaths and that seem as if they would not be so demanding upon the flesh. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would put a great check and caution in the soul of any of them who are about to take the wrong road. And remind them, we pray, this week and in these weeks and months ahead as they make their decisions, that the crucified life is the right life. And help them by your grace to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to put them to death day by day. We ask this in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to sing just one stanza tonight. I think it's the number that we sang last Lord's Day evening. It's 438 in our hymn book. And it's the first stanza that is just so especially appropriate to this moment by moment. And again, I want to call our attention to the text, the lines. Look at that first stanza. Dying with Jesus by death reckoned mine. God reckoned Christ's death to be the death of everyone for whom he substituted himself. Now there is this reality, living, the actuality, living with Jesus a new life. And that is the crucified life. And we're looking to the Lord Jesus for that wonderful day of glory. And all the way through, praise the Lord. We're kept by his love. Let's stand together and sing that one stanza. one more time without the instruments.
dismissed.